chapter from verses 35 to 42. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples. This is John the Baptist. And as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, Look, here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned away and saw them following, he said to them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated anointed. He brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There we go. The wonderful little podcast that I enjoy uh, listening to, or it's really a show on National Public Radio, it's called StoryCorps. And it's basically just a, a wonderful little show of, of ordinary people interviewing their loved ones and telling stories from ordinary life. Um, the stories are, are very common, but the reason why the, the show is so inspiring uh, and enjoyable to listen to. It has everything to do with the questions that the interviewers ask their loved ones. They, the, the, the show, StoryCorps, uh, encourages anyone to conduct an interview so you can do or love someone who has a story you think is worth sharing, you can conduct an interview and then submit that interview uh, to their app or to their website and they might choose to air that uh, story that you put together. And so you can go on their website and if you want to conduct and submit an interview, just click on the link, Great Questions. And you check a few boxes about how, what kind of interview you're going to do. And then they give you a list of, of great questions that, uh, that you can ask that help to form and draw out a wonderful story to tell. You know, questions are, are important. They lead somewhere. Here are, here are the great, great questions that, uh, that StoryCorps suggests. And I think these are wonderful questions. If you're sitting at a coffee shop with someone wanting to get to know them better, or if you're sitting with a journal and you want to get to know yourself a little bit better, here are some questions. What are you most proud of in your life? When in life have you felt most alone? See, questions lead somewhere. Do you have any regrets? What does your future hold? Is there something about me that you've always wanted to know but have never asked? How would you like to be remembered? I think that's a really important question actually to live by. What was the most profound spiritual moment of your life? This is a secular show on NPR, by the way. When you, and they came up with these questions. When you meet God, what do you want to say to him? 
Have you ever experienced a miracle? I asked that question to the congregation a couple weeks ago. Good questions lead to good outcomes, whether in relationships or in scientific inquiry or in personal spiritual inquiry. And so throughout this Lent, what we're going to do is each week we're going to be looking at one of the great questions that Jesus asked uh, followers or people that he encountered along the way. These great questions. Jesus was a master at asking the right question at just the right time uh, to accomplish what he would hope to accomplish in their lives. And the questions that he asks these people along the way, they're meant for us as well. They're, they're questions that we are meant to, to wrestle with in our own lives. And the reason it's important for us to wrestle with the questions that Jesus asked and to reflect on them in our own lives is because when we do so, we get to know ourselves better. Um, we often think that we know ourselves pretty good. But the truth of the matter is there is a lot to each and every one of us that we do not know. And, and so we can, ask these, we can ask these questions of ourselves. John Calvin said nearly all the wisdom which we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, knowledge of God and knowledge of self. And it's really hard to tell which one comes first and which leads to the other. The more you come to know yourself, the more you can come to know the true God. And the more you come to know the true God, the more you come to know yourself. So let's get into the story a little bit today and this question for us. Um, it took place not long after the baptism of Jesus by John in the Jordan River. At the very beginning of his public ministry and uh, Jesus and John the Baptist, you know, John the Baptist and Jesus were cousins and they meet again uh, in the first chapter. It's, a, it's an odd little story in the Gospel of John. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the authors tell the story quite differently than John does. John puts an intriguing twist into the story here and there. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they just tell it very plain. Um, the, the, Jesus sees potential disciples. He calls them to drop everything. They drop everything, and they turn, and they follow, and that's kind of it. But in John's gospel, it's a little bit different. Here, Jesus is walking by, and John points him out. And there's a, actually a wonderful, famous painting of John the Baptist pointing to Jesus. And, uh, and he points to his two followers, and he says, look, look, there goes the Lamb of God. Now, you've never heard the Lamb of God, uh, you know, in the first chapter of, of John. You don't really get to an understanding conceptually of what that means until later in John. So, at this point, it sounds quite strange. What is this? What do you mean, a Lamb of God? Like a weak little Lamb of God going by? But whatever John, whatever he meant or didn't mean by that, those two disciples, they just drop everything and they go and they follow him. Uh, they just take off. And you have to kind of wonder, how well did they think this through? Uh, did they do a, a cost-benefit analysis of this decision? Did they talk with their parents first? Um, or did, did they get the permission of their employer? Was there a synagogue committee that had to approve this decision? Nope, they just go. And then you have to ask, well, where are they going? 
They don't know. Well, how much is this going to cost them? They don't know that either. How are they going to get there? They don't know that either. What will this make of them? When will they return? They don't have answers to any of these questions. All they know is that they have finally found the right person to follow. And somehow that's enough for them. Maybe you can relate to this. Maybe there are days when you wonder, how am I going to get through this? This health issue. This financial mess, this dream that is not coming true, this relationship issue, this job thing that I was convinced God wanted me to do, this cancer treatment, this radiation, and you find yourself asking, well, Jesus, what are you, what are you asking of me? Where will you lead me? What is Jesus doing to me? How am I going to be useful here? And you don't have answers to any of those questions. All you know is that you just follow Jesus and somehow that's supposed to be enough. Along the way, Jesus realizes that there are two young men following behind him. How did he know that? How did he come to realize that? Did he see their shadow being cast as he was walking? Did he kind of look over his shoulder and see two people following him in his periphery? You know, if you've ever been followed, sometimes you can kind of sense that, that someone is following me. We don't really know. John doesn't tell us. All we can imagine is that he stops and he turns on his heel and he looks at them. And, uh, and then he asks them a question. By the way, these are the first words out of Jesus' mouth in the Gospel of John. 38 verses preparing the way. Finally, here it comes. What are you looking for? What a question he asks them. It has to be one of the greatest existential questions of all time. What are you looking for? And notice who it is who's asking the question. Jesus the Messiah, he's supposed to be the one who is the source of our questions, the the source of our search, and he's the one asking the question, what are you looking for? Friends, we're meant to hear that question to us today. What are you looking for? You're on the journey. You have no idea quite where it's going to end up. You thought maybe the question would come later, but nope, it comes today. Right from the text, right from there to here to now, what are you looking for? How would you respond to this question? Are you going to say, well, uh, I'm looking for healing. I'm looking to find some meaning in my life. I'm looking for a new relationship. I'm looking for acceptance. I'm looking for approval. I'm looking for notoriety. I'm looking for success. I'm looking for world peace. I'm looking for the restoration of the world. I'm looking for justice for the impoverished. I mean, what kind of an answer is worthy of the question? Maybe you're thinking, well, I just thought I was going to come to church today. But nope, here's the question. What are you looking for? And maybe you're saying, well, I I came to church because I've got my questions for God. That's great. They're always welcome. But today he's asking you, what are you looking for? 
If you're struggling to come up with an answer to the question, don't feel bad about that because neither could the disciples. I mean, I I sort of picture them standing next to each other, kind of caught red-handed, thinking that they were going to remain anonymous there like they're following a famous person. You know, there's Taylor Swift. There she goes. Don't let let her see you, you know, and and he looks at, and, and what are you looking for? And I picture them just kind of going, oh, hands on their waist, kind of looking at the ground, one of them slowly kicking a pebble. Finally, one of them just blurts out, uh, we, we just wanted to know where you're staying tonight. <laughs> and you can picture the other one going, oh, really? Like, that's the best you could come up with? I can relate to these disciples. But still, the grace comes. Come and see, Jesus says. Come and see. Come and see. And there they go. There they go. And they spend the day with him. And at the end, one of them, Andrew, finds his brother Simon. And he says to him, he blurts out to him, Simon, we, we have found the Messiah. Which is another way of saying, of course, we just found what we didn't know we were looking for all along. If you ask the question today, most people around the world, I think, would answer happiness. What are you looking for? I'm looking for happiness. What do you want more than anything else in the world? More than a million dollars or perfect health or even to go to heaven when you die? Uh, I think happiness now is the answer. A long time ago, heaven would have been the answer. Back when life was shorter and a lot harder, heaven sounded like a really good idea. Uh, This is when we came up with hymns like I'll Fly Away Someday, which arose out of of the slave experience and the African-American spiritual. Heaven looked like a great idea in those days. Even John Calvin had an argument with himself about this subject. Uh, He said that Christians really should be focusing on on eternal life, but they can't seem to stop thinking about their lives now. He said, even though nearly all people want to appear to be striving after immortality, if you examine the plans, the deeds, the efforts of anyone, then you'll find nothing else but earth. It's kind of grumpy, frustrated uh, well, I was going to call him a Calvinist. <laughs> I suppose he is one, being he's John Calvin. But, you know, it's not easy. It's not possible, maybe. I don't even think it's appropriate to try to convince people that their present state of happiness or unhappiness is not important. The pursuit of happiness is one of the unalienable rights that's written in our Declaration of Independence. I think happiness matters. You know, if, if there's a thing called the World Happiness Report. If you're interested in what makes for happiness and where happiness is strongest and weakest around the world, you can go to worldhappiness.report and read all about it. It's a wonderful uh, tool. Researchers have identified what makes human beings happy. And, of course, the, the reasons are um, overwhelmingly relational. Other people, other people make you happy. 
Here are a few techniques that are supposed to uh, increase happiness. One, and you've probably heard some of these from me or Bree before, keep a gratitude journal. You know, write three blessings a day, just three blessings a day. We spend so much time thinking about all the things that are going wrong all the time, so just write down three things that went right uh, each day. Do gratitude exercises. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, the scientists, you know, they know that expressing gratitude not only will make you feel good, it actually raises your energy and relieves pain and fatigue by practicing expressing gratitude. Number three, acts of altruism. Do five kind, random acts of kindness per week, and it will boost your spirit. You want happiness? Try some of these things. Number four, this one's for me because I've never done it before. Make a gratitude visit. Well, that means write a note to someone for whom you're grateful and then hand deliver it to them. Maybe even read it to them. I know some of you do this regularly. It's a wonderful thing. Apparently, a gratitude visit is the single most effective way to turbocharge your joy. You want to know what doesn't work? Money. Money. Once you have your basic needs met and you can pay the bills, incremental amounts of income, while nice, do not uh, produce commensurate amounts of happiness, not anywhere near as dramatic as gratitude and relationships. And that's why the grateful poor will always be uh, way happier than the ungrateful rich. But what about religion? When it comes to religion, everybody knows, although it's taken science a, a while to figure this out and to get on board with it, it's kind of awkward sometimes, but there is a connection between religion and happiness. Now, science is asking the question, why? Not whether, we all know it's true, but why? That's the scientific inquiry question. Why are religious people happier? And the answer seems to be that religion, for many, provides social and spiritual support, uh, a caring community, hospitality, a place to be. That is many of the things that people say that they need in order to be happy. And now at this point, the sermon could turn quite self-serving. Those of you who are worshiping online, just put your hand on the computer screen and you'll be healed. Uh, send us a check for $100 and you'll be repaid tenfold. All of you who were in the intro to MOPC class, join the church and you will be happy. No, there's no quid pro quo here. Sorry to say it. There are techniques, things to do that for many people produce happiness. But the text itself doesn't send us on a goose chase trying to figure out what makes for happiness. The text itself forces us to focus our attention and our energy on the question itself. What are you looking for? That's where the juice is. That's where the growth is. That's where we need to be. This is why Rilke, uh, the great poet, said in his famous advice to a young poet, questions. Live your questions. Love your questions. What are you looking for is the basic question. 
Presbyterian theologian George Stroop writes this. He said, the issue is not finally whether one believes, but as the Bible recognizes what one loves most fervently and what the heart yearns for as its final happiness. There is a great deal at stake in the question of what finally will satisfy the deepest longings of the human heart. Pastors um, in the Presbyterian Church, we have to go through graduate school and take these classes called systematic theology for a year, and we learn all these different concepts and constructs and whatnot, and, and then we spend the rest of our lives unlearning all this stuff. Um, but one of the most intriguing ideas of them all that, that I, f- I find to be the most useful um, for me is that God is the source of the basic question that we ask. The idea that God has created us to seek, to search, to look. The joy is in the search. The faith is in the search. It's not in the solution. God has created us, you've probably heard this, I think it was Pascal who said it, with a God-sized hole in our hearts that nothing but God can fill. The psalmist says, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul thirsts for you, O God. And you might remember the great African theologian Augustine of Hippo 16 centuries ago in his memoir, who actually gave us the whole genre of memoir. He said, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. See, the longing we experience, the emptiness, the incompleteness, the looking for something, it is all built into us by God. It's given to us by God. It's not meant to go away. It's a call to worship, a call to prayer. Thomas Aquinas, centuries later, said it again in an essay on desire, including the erotic. He said, the basic human desire is for God. This is what we're looking for, for God for truth, for relationship with that which is ultimate, for the divine indwelling within us, for some sense that my life matters to God and in some way fits into the pattern that God knows. Our world is volatile, and maybe it's more dangerous or palpably more dangerous and threatening than ever before. And the realities of insurrections and mass shootings and warfare and global tribalism and nationalism and climate destruction, amid all of that, in the meantime, we live in a culture that measures us by the clothes that we wear, the cars that we drive, the size of our homes, the schools that we attended, a world in which a sudden downturn in the market, an unfavorable personnel review, a no from a college application, the wrong lab report, the end of a relationship, any of these things can be a devastating blow and a threat to everything that has given us meaning and hope. And so, yes, indeed, there is not a one of us who in some way or another isn't looking for something. So I just have a simple conclusion and proposal. 
for you, for me today. I conclude and propose that what we're all looking for, no matter what we are, or no matter who we are, or how old we are, or how much money we have or don't have, I conclude and propose that each and every one of us in some way or another is looking for God, looking for a place to be, looking to be welcome and at home, looking for someone to follow something big and important enough to commit our lives to. The psalmist wrote, one thing I have asked of the Lord and that I will seek after to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Not all the days of eternity after I die, all the days of my life. We are looking for a place to be where we're welcome and at home and we're looking for someone to follow. Sometimes the evidence is very, very simple. Like, like two weeks ago when Miss Jen, our family ministries director for the third year in a row, had all of the children in her care between the ages of kindergarten and fifth grade write Valentine's Day cards of love and appreciation and affirmation to all the staff members at St. Mark's Hospital. Love notes from children you've never met at your place of difficult work. What are we looking for? Well, that for one thing, but what is that? It's Him, the one who showed us what love looks like, the God who is love. The Lamb of God is who we're looking for, the one who gives us to a place to be and a person to follow all our lives and a cause big enough to commit our lives to, to work for and to serve, to love for, and even to die for. Jesus Christ is who we're looking for. Dear God, in so many ways for so many years, we have been looking, and in our hearts we have always known that it's you that we look for. You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless, except when we choose to rest in you. Amen.